If you've been enriched by the content on the podcast this year, would you consider making a year-end gift to help support the ongoing ministry of Think Biblically? Your support will make a difference and will allow us to continue providing this resource to you and to others at no cost. To make a gift online, visit giving.biola.edu. That's giving.biola.edu. And be sure to designate your gift to the Think Biblically podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful holiday season. Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, dean of the faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're here with a guest that I am thrilled is joining us. I've been following his writings on a range of issues for a number of years. Dr. Krishna Smith has written in a, a, just a range of different issues from social theory, culture, capitalism. One of my favorite books he wrote on the intersection of kind of youth, younger millennials, uh, known as Soul Searching. But today we're going to talk about a very interesting book that he recently wrote with Oxford University Press called Atheist Overreach. Now, before we jump into the particulars of this, thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Smith. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm really curious, what motivated you as a sociologist to write a book addressing the nature of the dialogue between secularism and religion in America today? Yeah, good question. I mean, I am a sociologist first and foremost, but I'm also very interested in philosophical questions, and I've done a lot of theological thinking, and I read in history and political science, so I'm pretty interdisciplinary. And in sociology, I primarily study religion. I'm a sociologist of religion, and there's been a, obviously the uh, new atheist movement has been a huge uh, uh, a force in the world. And in the United States, we sociologists have noted that there's a significant growth of non-religious Americans, Americans who say they're of no religion. So I have just been interested in thinking about, okay, if the world, if, if the United States, if the whole world became more and more secular, what would be the cultural consequences uh, in a lot of fields, but especially in morality? I'm interested in sociology of morality a lot. What would be the consequences over a generation or two generations or further of, of uh, religion uh, becoming smaller and smaller in its influence? So I've just started reading a lot of atheist books about morality, and I came away from many of them, not all of them, feeling like they had sort of played their hand of cards uh, too, too aggressively and really couldn't defend some of the claims that they were making. So is that essentially what you mean by atheist overreach, which is the title of the book? Yeah, the idea of overreach is, uh, at least the authors I engage, I'm not saying every last atheist, I'm not saying every writer, every scientist, I'm, I'm very clear that this is about some atheists, and I specify the ones I'm talking about. But yeah, that, that the ones I'm talking about, they claim too much, in my opinion, they they overreach in their claims. They try to argue that they're able to deliver more than I think they can. The subtitle of the book is What Atheism Can't Deliver. So I'm not saying atheism, uh, atheists can't be moral at all, or that they, atheism and science aren't compatible. Uh, I'm just saying, hey, on a bunch of key points, morality, science, human nature, 
some significant atheists are just claiming too much that they really can't rationally defend, in my view. So, Dr. Smith, let's be a little more specific on that. Uh, when it comes to the, the claims that atheism is making about morality, give, give us a, a couple of examples of this atheist overreach that you're describing, particularly when it comes to the area of uh, universal human rights, moral goodness. Uh, what, what is atheism claiming, and what do you think that they can end up responsibly claiming? Right. So I have two chapters in the book on morality, and a number of, uh, of atheists today are not just saying, hey, there's no God. They're saying, hey, we can have an amazing world without God. Uh, we can be good without God, and not just sort of decent individuals, but we should all be responsible for a universalistic ethic of benevolence to all human beings and respecting the rights of all human beings, assuming that we have rights, so that we should, without, without any reference to God, uh, it's just us on this little planet, we should be able to construct out of our own minds a moral system where we care about everybody on the planet, strangers, even enemies on the other side of the planet, people who are, people who are victims of disasters in the other side of the world, and even people who are difficult, who are unproductive, who are are drains on society, we should be able to redistribute resources in order to respect, in order to make sure everybody's well taken care of, and every individual should have a moral obligation to care for the welfare of all other human beings in the human race, in every country. A lot of atheists, or some of the atheists that I'm talking about, Say we should be able to believe this morally, and I just do not see the basis for those kind of strong moral claims. I do believe that atheists have rational reason to uh, be committed to what I call a more modest morality, a more careful or uh, moderate morality in which everybody takes care of themselves, everybody cares for the people around them that they love, and, and everybody in a purely godless universe would be very careful to be honest, to be kind, to be good to all the people around them who might affect their lives. But there's a huge gap between that kind of modest morality and a universalistic commitment to human benevolence and human rights for all humans on the planet. And not just in theory, but proactively seeking the good of other people, sending resources to help them, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, you, you often hear the, the, the reference to, to uh, Dostoevsky made by religious people, that if there is no God, all is permitted uh, when it comes to morality. You, w you wouldn't say that's necessarily true. It sa sounds yeah, like for, a, for a long time, I entertained the possibility that that was correct and that— um, that, that Friedrich Nietzsche is correct, that if there's no God, then it's all wide open. Anything is possible. But I think I'm not persuaded by that in the, in the end. I think it's possible that atheists can make a coherent argument for um, the kind of modest morality I just, um, I just elaborated. Now, if, if an individual atheist wanted to, wanted to, throw morality out the window, 
I think they could actually make a coherent argument for that. But I think the majority of people would say, no, we're not going to go there, that we can't have a good society, or that's going to that's gonna impinge upon the happiness in my life. But note, the difference is that wouldn't be God is going to judge that person or karma is going to catch up to that person and give them their just desserts. It's a society will rein those per- those people in, sanction them, punish them, and so on. It's society in an atheist universe. God is replaced by society. Yes. Society becomes the lawgiver, the the watcher over, and the punisher. It sounds a bit to me like the the modest morality that you think atheism could could plausibly argue for is is essentially what I would call a glorified ethical egoism. Yeah, the way I would put it in a little bit more nicer language is it's uh, enlightened self-interest. It's it's egoism. It's ultimately it's driven by egoism, but it's not it's not a harsh, selfish, short-sighted egoism. It's an enlightened egoism that says, "Look, if I want to live in a certain kind of world, if I want people to treat me in a certain way, then we should all behave. We should all be committed to a certain way of behavior." But in the end, it's in in the end, it's in order for my good and my family's good and our my tribe's good, not because there's a principled universal natural law or command from God. So it, it would be any 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 essentially moral demand that would relate to others would be would have instrumental value as a means to an end to my own self-interest, but not intrinsic value in and of itself. Yeah, it's essentially consequentialism. It's really, and a number of these atheists will say, we can learn from science what the consequences will be if we behave in A, B, or C way. And, and then we learn from science, and we apply that in our rational sort of deliberations and figure out the kind of moral system we want to promote. It's our invention uh, that is based on the consequences. One of the issues that you raise for uh, the atheist moralism, at least of those atheists that you interact with, is a question of why someone should be good when it is in their self-interest not to, when violation has a nice payoff and there's little chance of being being caught. So in other words, why care about the collective good when it conflicts with individual interest? Why is this such a problem, you think, for atheistic morality, and why do you spend time on this in the book? Yeah, this is a long-term philosophical problem. It goes all the way back to Socrates. David Hume uh, engaged the question, and in my view, didn't give much of an answer to it. But I think this is one of the weaknesses of a universalistic atheist ethic, which is I can see no reason why in in an atheist universe, even an enlightened self-interest person who's shrewd, what I call it, I call it the shrewd opportunist. Um, David Hume called him the, this person the sensible knave. But I see no reason why such a person shouldn't basically take this position. Well, I want everyone else to act morally, and I will almost always act morally. But when situations come along where it benefits me to violate the moral standard, and I'm quite confident or sure I can get away with it, I will. Because what's the cost? Why not? It makes sense to do that. Um, 
those people who will be psychologically disturbed, they'll, they'll be upset by it. It may not be worth it for them to do it. But if people realize there's no God, I'm not going to get caught. This is not going to have any bad consequences for me. They shouldn't be psychologically disturbed. They should be happy that they've gotten in a situation that will benefit them. Um, so then the question is, if you get a society full of really shrewd people or thoughtful, intelligent people that put all the pieces together, if everybody starts acting that way, then you have a society where everybody's cutting corners and taking advantage and only look, only acting based on their reputation, not on an actual moral character. Uh, they, they can act differently when they can get away with it. And, I mean, in some ways, I think that's actually the kind of society we have. But let's set that point aside. My, my, my philosophical point here, or the, or the basic reason's point, is there's nothing in atheism that I can see that would prevent that from happening. And if that happens, the more people do that, the, the more the whole system breaks down. And the other, the other perverse thing about that is uh, what, you, what, you ha what atheism has is, a even though atheism generally takes the position of we are the most honest, we're the most rational, we're the most straightforward, we just live up to the facts kind of people, in that kind of a system, you're actually better for society's functioning to not let people know there is no God. You're actually better to let the masses think there is a God or there is karma or there is uh, evil spirits or whatever the system would be that would keep them from acting uh, like the shrewd opportunist. So then atheism is in a position where it's better to not really tell the truth, even though it's, its posture in general is it wants to tell the whole world that no God exists. That is a really interesting observation because we're often often told, at least often here when I hear some atheists expound on this, is that they are being more moral because they're not acting how a God will judge them, but just doing good within itself. And you're saying, wait a minute, if we want to actually have a system that works, we actually in some ways have to mislead the public to get people to act morally. Is that right? That's the logic of my argument. And the, the kind of person you recommended, I would push very hard on what the heck do they mean by good in itself? Where does good come from? How do they know that that's good? If there was a, in my book, I talk about the reasonable skeptic, not a crazy person, but somebody who says, well, why, why is that good? Why should I be committed to that? So I think a lot of people have a cultural inheritance from millennia of moral teachings all the way back from, you know, Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers and Judaism and Christianity that has told us as a civilization what is good. And they just accept that, and then they think they can drop the metaphysical commitments behind it and still keep the moral values. I just don't think they're thinking very hard. I think we, you know, we would suggest that culture's been living on borrowed capital like that for, for some time. Yeah, spending down the, the moral bank account, so to speak. Yeah, and you, you, you wonder when the, you know, when the loan officer is going to call the loan on that uh, right. and, you know, and demand that it actually be paid. Integral to my argument in the book is the idea that it's possible to sustain a decent society, a decent civilization based on historical inheritance for some time, but eventually children or grandchildren or some movement is going to say, 
why do we do this? This is crazy. What's the basis for these commitments, especially when morality is costly? It requires people to sacrifice. And especially when things get tough in a society, if you have an economic, a serious economic downturn or serious uh, political or military conflict, people can afford to be pretty nice when uh, the economy is going great and politics are stable and they can go shopping and all their needs are met. Human beings can turn very nasty when things get bad. So I think um, I I might use different metaphors, but definitely there is a sort of living on a past inheritance that I don't count will be infinitely sustainable. Now you make, you, you just referred to it a minute ago and you make the point in the book that secularists are often pretty scornful of the idea of a, you know, a, a, a watchful, a punishing God um, that enforces moral order from a transcendent perspective. But, we also point out that secularists substitute their own version of either the state or society or some collective that's necessary to secure a sense of moral order in the culture at large. What exactly do you mean by these substitutes, and why is this so important? Yeah, it's interesting culturally because I think a lot of people who may have been raised religious and then if they decide they're not religious or they, they don't believe in God, they feel a sense of liberation. Like, I, there's nothing hanging over my head anymore. I mean, the God they were raised to believe in probably isn't a true God to begin with, but set, set that aside. There's a sense of, like, I'm free now. I'm free. Well, the fact of the matter is, and even all of these atheists I talk about recognize this, nobody's free. I mean, human beings are, are not the kind of creatures that are just going to do exactly what they ought to do without any constraints, without any formation, without any consequences. And so all of the, all of the atheists that I talk about are very clear. Um, well, of course, society will have to monitor people. Of course, society will have to have laws. Of course, society will have to punish those who break the moral order. So all the functions that uh, God used to serve, so to speak, are taken over by, quote-unquote, society, except probably you don't have the love that traditionally uh, Christian or Jewish or Muslim God would have also have had for humanity. So it's, this, it's the overseeing lawgiver-punisher minus the love is what you end up with. That's a really interesting and helpful way to put it. Very, very minus helpful. Minus the grace. Minus the grace, that's right. That's exactly what's lacking. I want to read a question from the book, a specific way you phrase it and then see if you comment on this. You wrote, if in fact we live in the naturalistic cosmos that atheists and much of science tells we occupy, do we have good reason for believing in universal benevolence and human rights as moral facts and imperatives? Why is that question so important and why is that problematic for an atheistic version of morality? Well, I mean, in the modern world we live in, for whatever reasons, uh, and I think they could be spelled out, but we have institutional commitments to uh, universal human rights, to the idea of um, protecting the weak, and to being benevolent to strangers. Uh, if there's a tsunami in Indonesia, 
in the United States, lots of people respond by wanting to send help. It may be ineffective, but at least there's a sense of responsibility for people who are suffering elsewhere. The United Nations has a universal declaration of human rights. We have the idea that if everyone in the society thinks that you're guilty of something, you're still innocent until you're proven guilty. We still have this idea that if you're disabled, society should go out of it to spend extra resources to make you have access to things, to public spaces. So all of these commitments to taking care of the, the vulnerable, the weak, the, the less, the disabled, the suffering, etc. If you start to look at society sociologically through that lens, you see we have these commitments. They're not just in people's brains. They're in institutions. So the question is, can we explain to our children why do we have those commitments that cost that are costly? They cost extra. That they they expect things from us. Uh, and if we can't, how long are they going to last? And do we want to live in the kind of world where those things are done away with, where we know, where the idea of human rights that developed over a very long period of time disappears, the idea that taking care of the suffering institutionally. Again, I think there will always be people who feel for other people's pain. But the question is, do we have a cultural institutional infrastructure that says, yeah, this is what we're committed to, this is what we're going to do. If atheism can't explain that, I think in the long run is very likely we end up with a world and a society that is different than the one atheists think they're bringing into being. So I'm simply saying in the book, hey, you guys and women, uh, I don't see this. I don't get this. Uh, if you could explain it, I would love to, I would love, I actually would love for them to be right. It would make me feel more relaxed living in the world if they could explain how we could have that kind of society. But I'm, I'm not seeing it. I'm not reading it. I read a lot of um, will, uh, uh, wishful thinking, a lot of good intentions, but, but not a lot of self-criticism, not a lot of really hard pushing their own arguments to their conclusions. From a religious standpoint, it makes sense that people would try to make the case for objective moral values and duties because we believe God exists, made us in his image, and humans have value. Why do you think there's so much effort on the side of secularists to say, hey, we can be good, we can have moral values, we can have a society that's morally good without God? Well, that's a great question, and I think there are different kind of answers, but um, I mean, obviously, atheism is a movement. It's not just a hypothetical position somebody might take. It's people who are activists. Who they don't. They think they want to promote what they have to say. That means you have to have an appeal to your audience. Um, and I just don't think there's much appeal if the if the atheist message is, "Hey, no God exists, everybody," and it doesn't mean the world is going to totally go to hell, but you definitely need to lower your expectations. This idea of human rights, probably we can't defend it. This idea of universal benevolence, like all this nice stuff in society, uh, we can't deliver that. That's, a, that's, that's not a very appealing sell. It's much better if you can say, we can deliver for you all the goods that you've inherited from the Western civilization and you can delete the God part and still have everything else. That's a much more appealing 
uh, message to sell. So I'm not saying that's the only part of this. And I'm not saying atheists are cynical about it. I'm not saying, hey, we need to lie to people to get them on board. I mean, I, the ones that I'm reading, they really believe this stuff. My point is not that they're cynical. My point is that I don't think their arguments, some of their arguments, hold water. Dr. Smith, you to, to move beyond some of the uh, considerations about morality, uh, you also address in the book uh, how atheists overreach on the question of human beings being naturally religious. Um, how, how specifically do they overreach in your view? And what does, as a sociologist, uh, what does the data show on that, that would that would speak to the question of human beings being naturally religious? Right. So um, there's a strong there's a strong um, theme in a number of religions, including Christianity, that you know Calvin would have said, or, or let's go for back further. Augustine would have said, you know, everybody's searching for God. Some people do it in an in the right way, and some people do it in totally misdirected ways. But even a lot of sin is searching for God the wrong way. Um, you know, these days people use phrases like a God-shaped hole and, you know, whatever. But the point is, a lot of religious people think humans are uh, inescapably religious. Uh, that's how God created them. Atheists would like to say... The general attitude about atheism is, no, human beings are naturally not religious. Human beings are naturally, by default, secular, and and religion is kind of an alien imposition upon human beings. It's kind of a, been foisted on people through ignorance and superstition and interested people like priests and such. Um, and so it matters a lot in thinking about the future and the kind of society we can have or should expect if human beings are naturally religious or if they're naturally not religious. If the atheists are right, then just need to sort of mm, strip away the religious influences and then people will return to their natural state of being secular. What I argue in the book is that if you look at the sociological evidence about the way human beings are now um, and have always been, as far as we know, Humans are not naturally religious in the sense that everybody um, will be religious. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. Um, there, there, there are plenty of societies that are basically secular, that are not that religious. Um, they're fairly functional. Some of them are very functional, if you take Denmark or whatever. But um, what I am arguing is that Nowhere in the world or in history do you find a culture or society or civilization that doesn't have religion. There are always people, religions are always springing up. If old ones die off, there are always new ones springing up. There seems to be something in human nature that has very strong capacities for and propensities toward believing in some kind of superhuman power, whether personal or impersonal, to turn to for help, maybe salvation, but maybe just very practical help during life. And even societies that have tried to extinguish that, they've had pu public policies to extinguish all religions like Soviet Russia, have failed. And so I I'm not saying that humans, every person is sort of a, an anonymous Christian or just under the surface religious, but I am saying there's something very profoundly uh, 
oriented toward being religious in human nature that's just not going to go away uh, that easily. And, and, and that that points to the idea that being religious is more baked into human nature than the, than the atheist position, which is humans are naturally secular by default. If we would just get rid of the religious uh, shysters then, uh, you know, that are put, imposing it on people, then people would just re- revert to secularism naturally. That's a really helpful pushback, and I know you've talked about the secularization thesis in some of your other writings, but that there just seems to be something about human nature that inclines us towards these religious questions. I, I think that's great. Let me ask you a final question to get your thoughts on it. Are you encouraged or discouraged or some combination of both about where the secular religious kind of conversation and debate is headed right now? I'm generally discouraged, and it's not just the secularism religious debate. Uh, it's, it's almost all public discourse. In the course of the last decades, I think most people see this, in the course of the last decade, sort of an old-style um, an old-style reasoned debate has kind of gone out the window, and we really just have way too much contentious, bombastic, um, demonizing one's opponents or enemies, uh, discrediting. If you don't like somebody's policies, then you figure out something in their personal life where you can torpedo them. I mean, I just the state of our public discourse in general is in a really, I think, actually a dangerous place. And I'm afraid that the religious, secular, you know, the religion and science, the religious secular um, piece of that reflects that larger um, attitude. When I, as a sociologist, when I read science, for example, if a book comes out on intelligent design, and I'm not an intelligent design advocate or anything like that, but I'm interested in how sociologically, how arguments like that are received, how heterodox or unorthodox scientific arguments are received, I just I just hear from scientists who want to refute it or rebut it or reject it. Like they are, they've already decided it's wrong. It can't be. And so then it's just, there's not an openness. There's not a real engagement. There's a dismissiveness. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of an arrogance and it it runs on very many sides that is troubling to me. I would still like to believe we could live in a world where, People can be civil, where evidence and arguments matter, where people can be open and and possibly change their mind. If we don't, then it all just reverts to power. Who has the most power to um, to win? And that's a scary world to me. That is a really helpful analysis of where our culture's at. And it's not just the secular religious discussion that you're talking about. It's the broader discussion as a whole. And I think you're right as those in the religious community and those in the atheist community and beyond, rather than blaming other people, probably need to take a look inside and ask ourselves, are we contributing to kind of the decline of conversation today or we make a difference in our own realm for positive interaction? I think that's a really helpful challenge and way for us to reflect and think about that in our own lives. Dr. Christian Smith, it's really been a treat to have you on the show. I want to commend to our listeners really all your writings, but in particular the book we've been talking about today, we really just scratched the surface. 
Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Can't Deliver. It's only 130 pages, but you pack it full with understandable, but also really interesting questions and content. And you have an opinion in here clearly, but I really appreciate how fairly you tried to look at the issues. So thanks for all your work, what you're doing at the University of Notre Dame and beyond. And thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed our conversation. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Christian Smith, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.